Welcome to the Best Ever You Network, celebrating our third year on Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Thank you for helping us become a number one rated live show with over one million global listeners. Our team is on a mission to help you discover your authentic best self and bring it to the world. And now, here's our show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Best Ever You Show. We're with you here on a Sunday night. Uh, it's uh, 7 o'clock Eastern time. We've got a great guest. Uh, John Marshall is with us. We're going to bring him on here shortly. I know you're all in the chat room live waiting to hear John, but guess what? You get to hear us first. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm one of the hosts. I'm Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, and uh, I'm in Maine, and, yeah, it's snowing again. And um, Dr. Walter, you got a heat wave out there, huh? Oh yeah, it's amazing. It's like it's it's 20 degrees higher than it normally is this time of year. So uh, it's really really hot. What's funny is like you start out in the morning like really chilled, but in no time it's like you're in like, you know a, a heat wave. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a rough life. Uh, yeah, you know somebody's got to be there in all that heat. I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, suffer through it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. On the East Coast, you just look at the weather map and you're like, oh my God, it's more. And you know, I'm I'm. We've got baseball. You know, baseball starts next week, and we literally still, and I know, listeners, I know you can relate to me other than John. I think you're in Florida, um, so I don't want to hear about heat down there either. But, I mean, we still have have snowdrifts, Walter, that are like 10 feet high. I'm not that is, kidding. It's cra- that's craziness. It's uh, you know, I I used to uh, I went to medical school in Milwaukee, and uh, they've got this wind chill factor off the lake, and so it's like minus like you know oh, forty yeah. below, and it, it's like winter eight months of the year. And uh, I got to tell you, that's why I'm in LA because uh, that just buried me. It was like brutal out there. Yeah, my parents live in Minneapolis, and they've been texting me all winter long, going ha ha, you know, <laughs> seventy here and all this stuff. So yeah, I completely get it. But um. Yeah, I, and and we were talking, like, should we talk about the weather during our show? Should we not talk about the weather during our show? And, and I kind of like it. I know we'll talk about other things here. We we also um, like to talk about our own books um, that we've got, um, because, Dr. Walter, I'm a huge fan of your book, and um, I love it when you tell people about your book and people want to hear, you know, some of the things that you do. Um, but you're you're just such a great expert in forgiveness and i love the videos that you post in our community so no, talk thanks. about forgive to win i love hearing about it yeah yeah well basically the idea is that uh is that people sabotage themselves they don't really get the life that they want oftentimes and uh my feeling is that there's a lot of embedded guilt shame and self-loathing and uh and that uh forgiveness isn't just a spiritual principle it's actually a material principle in a way that uh the more you get out of yourself the more you help others, the more uh, you are compassionate and forgiving of others. You're actually kind of healing yourself in the process and then allowing the universe and people to cooperate and synergize with you and, and help to make like positive changes in your life. Yeah, and um, that's where I come into play. I'm the change girl. I'm the, I'm the mindset and change person. So my book's a, I have a Hay House book out. It's called Percolate, Let Your Best Self Filter Through. And I've got about 20 years of experience teaching CEOs and entrepreneurs and all sorts of people um, how to change and, um, and the mindset needed to change. And so my book has a nine-step process in it that helps you learn to percolate peace. And um, we've got um, part of that, I think, is kind of a neat tie-in to John. Maybe it's a good time to kind of move into bringing John on board because um, at, the, at the end of Percolate, we talk about percolating peace and helping others and the community and all that. And um, 
I think our guest kind of takes volunteering to a, a new level. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Dr. Walter? I, when I, when I, th- I think sometimes when people think of volunteering, they um, think of maybe writing a check or going to the soup kitchen or volunteering at the PTA, things like that. Uh, what's your experience? I'm just curious before we bring John in. What's your experience with volunteering? Have you ever dropped everything and traveled the world to volunteer? <laughs> no, uh, I, no. This is like a, that was a major, you know, position that that John took that he's going to talk about. But uh, no, uh, but the, the volunteering I've done is I, you know, I I try to give talks on forgiveness. I try to give talks about being of service to others, people kind of getting out of themselves and and doing esteemable acts of kindness as as much as they can. So I, I give talks, and you know, all my videos are a form of volunteering because I don't get paid for them. I just like to share information and and hope that uh, other people will gain from them. So, but I, I think it's really really important that people that it can't just be about you you know it's got to be about giving something back it's got to be about sharing what you've got rather than just figuring out what you can get you know yeah and and how i know john is I, i'm in maine and john, and john was in maine at one point and uh i uh, he said elizabeth can you I, th- I think it went down like this it was like can you can you help me out with this subaru commercial and he put me in a subaru commercial it was a speaking part and we went to like three different cities in maine and we taped this subaru commercial and that was my first um real dealing with him but um, I discovered in that day just exactly how brilliant he is and why he has so many Emmys and all these things. He's just absolutely brilliant. And I know I, I left that experience going, gosh, I wish I could do more things with him. And before I knew it, the station manager was like, well, he's leaving. He's, like, doing all these things and, and volunteering and moving his kids and moving his wife and doing all these things. And now I know what it was that they were all talking about that he was doing. Here it is in this book. So, um, But what a pleasure to just have a brush with him. And so I can't wait to um, bring him on, which I'm going to do now. And uh, let's, see, let's see if he hung on with us throughout that whole conversation. Are you still with us, John? Have you, have you, I'm have still you traveled here. to a different country? <laughs> We've been talking. No, I've been listening and enjoying it. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, great to be here. Oh, it, it's just such a joy to have you here. And uh, for everybody listening, John's the author of Wide Open World, How Volunteering Around the Globe Changed One Family's Life Forever. Um, his name is John Marshall, and his website is johnmarshall.com. And if you're tweeting us tonight, um, he is johnmarshall.com on Twitter, so johnmarshall.com. And uh, you're on Facebook. you got a Facebook page and all that stuff. And um, when was it, John, when was this released? When was your book released? Uh, it was released in February, so it's pretty new. It's been out for about a month. Yeah. And did you know, like, from that point that I met you doing that Subaru commercial, like that day, were you focused on, you know, like leaving? <laughs> Not the, did you already know you were going to do all this? Or or was there well, a point like Well, we had it that? in, yeah, yeah, we had it in the works. It was something where, I mean, it kind of came up. We were going through some difficult times um, in my family, actually, um, you know, my wife and I had been married for about 20 years. We were sort of drifting apart, and my kids were growing up and drifting away. You know, my 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 kids spent a lot of time on social media, kind of looking down, and uh, I felt very much disconnected from them. And even the job at the TV station where I met you, Elizabeth, I was I was feeling sort of disconnected from this all. I was feeling like, wow, how do I how do I pull all these people that I love so much back into my life and my wife had always wanted to take a trip around the world. Um, as soon as our first child was born, we talked about it. But 
you know, like a lot of people, we just we didn't have the money for a trip around the world. Um, I just couldn't figure out how to do it. And, you know, now my son was a junior in high school. My daughter was a freshman. And we thought, wow, if we don't do it right now, it's never going to happen. And so that's when I had the idea. And three words kind of popped into my head. And those three words were year of service. Hmm. And and that was really the start of it. I that that when I had those three words that really popped into my head about nothing, I thought I knew exactly what they meant. I knew they meant this trip, and I thought, wow, if we could do a year of service instead of just a, a travel around the world, this might be something we could actually pull off and something we could afford and maybe be a lot more meaningful too. You know, what, to me, it sounds like such a courageous, incredibly courageous thing. I mean, you guys quit, uh, both of you quit your jobs and just decided you're going to take off on, an, on an, an adventure that had no real definition. I mean, there was no real guarantee of how it was going to play out. How, gosh, how did you, you kind of deal with Were you afraid, or how did you deal with that? Yeah, no, not afraid at all. In fact, I was really so eager to take this trip. One of the final um, pieces of the puzzle for us to put together was what were, what were we going to do with our house? And so... We tried to sell it, to be honest with you. I mean, that's how eager we were to do this trip. We tried to sell our house, and we couldn't sell it. That was right as the market was taking a tank. And so we rented it to someone who we, who we met through Craigslist. And, and I had complete red flags about this person. I really did not trust them, but I was so eager to go that we gave her our keys and went out the door and wow. we didn't, you know, I thought about it later. We didn't even put anything away. We just went. And um, so maybe we were a little reckless in that regard. But, um, no, I wasn't afraid. I was really excited to go out and see what would happen. Fantastic. So <laughs> this this book, Wide Open World, it's a, it's a firsthand account of your whole family's experience with what you call volunteerism. And uh, where did you go? What you do, did you have that planned out too? I mean, how how did you decide where you were going to go? <laughs> Even. Yeah, I mean, so that is the thing. So once you decide, you know, once we made the decision we were going to do this, then we had to pick places. And so really, our our system for choosing places was very unscientific. So the first place we went to was in Costa Rica, and so we we thought, well, maybe it might be fun. There's lots of rainforests and things, so maybe. We'll go to Costa Rica, and we will find something to do with animals. So we would, we would type in Costa Rica volunteer into the search bar and see what came up. And we'd look around, and we'd, we'd contact them directly um, through websites and things. There are a lot of brokers online you can find who will set these things up for you. They generally cost quite a bit more money, but they tend to take care of you, and if people want to – you know, well-worn path that they'll feel maybe more secure about. You can go through brokers and they'll set up these whole trips for you. Um, but we did it all ourselves. We would just contact a place. Our budget was so small. Our budget was $1,000 a month for all four of us. So that's $8 a day per person to live and eat in an exotic place around the world. And so we needed to find places that would, first off, take four people at a time. Some places don't take four. We needed to take um, find places that would take people under the age of 18, because our children were 17 and 14, and we needed to find a place that would work within that budget of $1,000 a month for all four of us. The great news is that can be done. Uh, you have to do maybe sometimes a little searching around, but we just picked countries that were interesting to us and then searched around on the Internet. That was, that was really our, our, our technique. 
So what was the first thing you volunteered to, uh, your family to do? What was that first experience like? Right. I, I chose this place in Costa Rica called the Oso Wildlife Sanctuary. And I picked it mo- mostly because I thought it would be easy. And I thought, you know, you'll, you'll go to, the, to the rain, this rainforest sanctuary, and what will you do? You'll, you'll maybe clean out some cages. Maybe you'll feed some animals. You'll do some easy stuff, but it'll be kind of almost like wading into the shallow end of the service pool. You know, that, that was my thought. But it turned out not to be that at all. Um, this place we went to is sits in the middle of a big unbroken rainforest. There's no roads in or out. You have to get there by a boat. And this is the only place that I know of in the world that's raising orphaned or injured monkeys outside of cages. So when you go, you live in a cage, and the monkeys are all on the outside free to run around. So, so, so every time you step outside, you're just part of the monkey troop, and they climb on you, and they, they kind of put a pecking order together, and you're, you're part of this big troop. I mean, the reason they do that is if you put a monkey in a cage, you can never release it into the wild. It needs to be free or it forgets sort of how to be a monkey in the wild. So it's great, but it, it does present certain challenges, for, particularly for, for adult males. They tend not to like the adult males so much. They love the kids. The females are fine. For some reason, these monkeys, particularly one of them, she, she had it in for me. So um, I, had, I, have, I had lots of run-ins with the monkeys, but it was an unbelievable experience for, for me and my family. Most people would probably love that, but um, just hearing you say it, it, was that, let me go this way, of everything that you did um, with all the trips that you made for this, which one was your favorite? Let's put it that way, because it doesn't sound like that one was. (laughs) Or maybe it was a (laughs) (laughs) Personally, I mean, personally for me, that one was the most difficult. Uh, yeah. Because there was this one right. spider monkey. These are spider monkeys who was – they're very territorial and jealous. So this one monkey was very possessive of me. She loved me. Everywhere I went, she climbed on me and went – I had to carry her on my head, on my shoulders. I mean she just – she loved me. But if anyone came near me, if any – all the other monkeys showed me any attention, she'd get really jealous. And she would bite me instead of <laughs> biting the other person. So that was a challenge. On the on the flip side of the challenge scale, I mean, my absolutely favorite place was an orphanage in India that we visited. And um, this is way, it's, it's over right on the Nepal border. And uh, it's called the Good Shepherd Agricultural Mission. And the children at this place, I mean, before I went on a trip like this, my view of orphans was just, you know, orphans. They're parentless, kind of sad, desperate, you know, kind of a faceless mass of humanity out there in the world. I don't really know anything about orphans other than kind of, you know, what you might see in sad pictures or feed the children ads or something like that. But these kids were not like that at all. They were so full of life. They were so funny. They were so loving. And they really kind of poured their love into me and my family kind of day after day as if we were the empty ones not the other way around at all. And so to spend time with them and to be have my children spend time with these amazing kids, uh, that was a really transformative thing for me. In fact, it's changed my whole life. I, I spent most of last year living back at this orphanage with them and have, have been working on a lot of causes for them uh, since I left. So really was an amazing experience. Wow. Were your, you know, were your kids able to get into it and, uh, and just put aside the, the social media and really do, you know, feel it like you did? 
Yeah, I mean, they had to in a way because we just unplugged them from the U.S. culture and we went off into the world. So there was some Internet withdrawals. I mean, they didn't have cell phones. We did have a, a little mini laptop that they could plug into if we had Wi-Fi around, but sometimes we just didn't have any, so you couldn't do any of that. And that was, that was hard but amazingly great, too, uh, for them. But, like, for example, in our first place down in Costa Rica, they were, you know, back home in America, maybe a lot of parents listening can relate, um, they weren't great workers around the house. And and I say this not to insult them, but you know, honestly, if I took them out into the, <laughs> I don't know. no one can relate to that story. Oh, no. um, but but like back in Maine, if 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 it was autumn and the leaves were out in the yard, we had a, a big yard with lots of leaves, and I said, hey, let's go rake. You know, if you got ten minutes of raking out of them, <laughs> that that would be you know that'd be a cause for a cheer. <laughs> oh, but yeah. but on the road. Like down in Costa Rica, you had to work. You got up, you had to go to your job, you had certain requirements, and they just weren't doing it initially. And so towards the end of that that time, we got royally kind of chewed out by the guy that was running the place. And he said, you know, this isn't a vacation. You guys are here to work, and your kids aren't doing it. And, you know, they kind of ripped into us as a as a group. And when my kids heard that, I think they were sort of embarrassed, but they really just picked up their game and so after Costa Rica, we went to New Zealand, and we worked on, on some organic farms all across New Zealand. There's a program called WOOFing, which stands for Willing Workers on Organic Farms, and it's a program where you can hook up with organic farms all across countries, in this case New Zealand, but it's all over the world. You can, you can do it here in the United States as well. And they'll give you free room and board in exchange for, say, three to five hours of work each day. Well, that means you have to work for three to five hours a day. And so my kids, after the Costa Rica experience, now they're just workers. So watching my son chop wood with me for five hours was probably made me happier than it probably should have. But I just love to watch my kids working willingly. It was really, it was like a revelation to me. And I think it was great for them too, because they, they were asked to do a lot and they did a lot. And I think that's how you gain confidence in life is by stepping up and doing the job. Did they, did your kids, and and did you realize how fortunate you are to these travels? Um, Yeah, I mean, I I do, and I think my, you know, I think my kids do as well. Um, And I recognize, I mean, we took out a home equity loan, in all honesty, to pay for this trip. So we weren't a rich and bored family. We weren't, I didn't have a book deal before we left home. We just we wanted to do this. We made it happen. And um, so in that regard, I think it's something that other people could duplicate, assuming they have some resources to actually get out and do it. We did it on the cheap. In fact, at the back of my book, there's a section called How to Volunteer Your Way Around the World, and it will walk people through exactly what we paid, exactly what we did, step by step, so that if they are inspired to want to do something like this, this can help them get out there and maybe – you know, make their own dream come true as well. But I also appreciate the fact that, you know, we talked about this for years, and I know a lot of people, when I tell people that we did this, they all say, oh, I want to do that. But, of course, I probably never will, but wouldn't that be great? And I think that we did. Like, what we did that I think is unique is we we actually stepped out and took that leap and broke free of the gravity that holds most people in, 
in place. And so, yeah, I, I feel like we all appreciate that this is kind of a unique opportunity. And it's something that we, it costs us some money, but my kids and I, our family will never look back on this and say, oh, fools, why did we take that trip? What a waste. You know, we could have, we could have stayed at home. You know, we'll, we'll always cherish these memories and, and have something to, we'll be talking about this for the rest of our lives, I'm sure. You know, uh, when you were initially before the show, I was thinking, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask him if he would ever do something like this again. You know, and and then, uh, and then you tell me that you already went back and you're, you spent a year doing other stuff. Yeah, I mean, this was something where I thought I had an interesting experience where, when my youngest child left home, I thought it really, really hit me hard. You know, I love being a parent. And um, I loved them. And when when she left and went off to school, I really thought I was really nostalgic for being a parent. I, I was trying to think of what to do, and I thought, you know, maybe this book was still in the pipeline, so it hadn't come out yet. I thought, well, maybe I'll go to India, and I will volunteer my way around India for a while, and I will um, have a new story, you know, maybe a follow up book or something like that. So I I got a ticket. I went over to India, and I. Um, I got almost instantly sick. I went to an elephant sanctuary. I was, I, was, I was volunteering with an elephant sanctuary. I was so sick. And the only people I knew in India were these people at the orphanage. And so I called them and said, I just wanted to be with someone who could, who I knew. And uh, so they invited me to come back. And I took a 15-hour bus ride across the country to get to their door. And, and they really welcomed me back there, and the kids nursed me back to health, and I remember just how amazing they were, and I, I really just fell in love with this place and, and ended up staying my entire time there at the orphanage. And um, so I've, I've worked on multiple fundraisers for them and working on video projects for them and taking the creativity that I've fostered and developed over the course of my whole professional career in the TV business, now using it on behalf of orphan children, which, I mean, they're the perfect client, but it's also just a really incredibly rewarding way to work for me so i really love those guys and and love the new kind of path my life has taken is that what new org is yeah i mean you know what i found while i was while i was traveling was that you know orphanages get kind of a bad rap um people think you know there's a lot of corruption out there people start orphanages just to make money um, I did some I did some work where I was out touring orphanages, doing some research and evaluating them for an organization. And I found some that I thought were totally fake. Uh, the kids I don't think even lived there at all. I think they were they were bust in for the day. Um, it was hard to tell. Some places that had no kids, but they were getting donations from from people around the world. And but then I found some that were doing it amazingly well. That were just creating opportunities for children to. Have a lease. I mean, there's there's something like 150 million orphans in the world today, right now, as we talk on the here on the radio. So, um, but that's just kind of a kind of a regrettable thing that we take take for granted in the world, and that's the way the world is. But man, I tell you, when you can take some of these kids from a destitute situation and bring them into a place where they're loved and they can really blossom, I can't think of any job that's better than that. So. Yeah, this organization I've started is called neworphanage.org, and it's really set up to find and fund the best orphan projects worldwide, to kind of vet them, to make sure that the people are honest, and then to help magnify their efforts. So that's something I've been working on quite a bit. 
I think people don't appreciate what it's like to have parents and to not have parents and to not have a family. I think a lot, most of us just kind of take it for granted, right? Right. I mean, we found two girls as just a quick story. Um, we heard that there were two girls in a local village who didn't have parents. So sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not true. So we had to go investigate. And I went along with the um, the people who were going to do the evaluating just to document it, take some pictures, maybe write a blog post about it or something. So we found these two girls, these two beautiful girls whose parents had died. And when they died, they took the girls, you know, here are these two girls. They didn't have any extended family. So they just didn't know what to do after the funeral. And they went back to their dumpy little tiny apartment and just closed the door. You know, they were 11 years old and nine years old. And they just went back on their own and shut the door. Now, this is not an apartment like you might imagine. It's just a tiny little hole in the wall with a tin roof and no, no glass on the windows, and it's boiling hot, and it's filled with mosquitoes. And the kids are so young, they're not going to school. Um, people in the, in the community are knocking on the door and giving them some food at night. Um, but they're afraid all the time. They're, they're, they're staying inside. And this went on for seven months. So when wow. we found them, they look like They've lived, you know, in a, in a war zone. And, and so we come in and meet them, and we end up bringing them to the mission, to the place where I was staying. Well, eight months later, they're the most beautiful girls. They're just the smartest kids in their class. They've learned two languages in eight months. And they are just, they're just angels. You know, they're princesses. And so I didn't even do anything there other than show up but i i count that as probably the best work of my life being a part of that one operation and so i really hope to do more of that i uh i think i can't think of anything else i could do with my time that would be more worthwhile and where was that again well this was in india uh the the little town is called banbasa and uh it's way over on, on the on the Nepal border, about eight hours east of Delhi, if you land in Delhi. Yeah. I, I have, a, I have some, some experience with this through growing up with my parents. Um, I, I had parents and have parents still, thank goodness, but one of the things my mom and dad did, they, they owned a chain of video stores in Iowa and Illinois, and they had um, extra money and so forth, and they would go into um, the orphanages in Iowa and um, help. They would donate Christmas. Mm. They would donate uh, just buy, they, and they'd buy everybody everything. Or um, eventually, what it turned into was, you know, just things like that at first. You know, what, how could they help? And um, eventually, we adopted a child from there at birth um, ah. with fetal alcohol syndrome. And so I've, yeah. I have some experience with this in the U.S. I was wondering, I, I guess my question is, are you going to do any of this in the, in the U.S., or do you prefer to do things overseas or everywhere? Um, how does that, how do you, what's your vision for that? Yeah, I mean, I think initially it, it will start, yeah, it'll start in India. I mean, the, the need yeah. around the world is so incredible, and it's, yeah. I'm not saying the need in America is not great. It's just It's just a difference of magnitude where, you know, you're in places where, in India, for example, you know, there's no services. So if there's an orphan child, this orphan child might live on the streets forever. But, you know, if you took that same child and plucked them into the middle of downtown Portland, Maine, 
it would probably be 30 seconds before someone would say, are you lost? Can I help you? Here, come with me and kind of take care of that problem. Um, in some of these other places, though, that's just not the case. I mean, these kids are, especially girls in India, they're, they're really vulnerable. Um, but that's true all over the world. The, I mean, the need is really so amazingly great. But it's also the thing that really, that really struck me um, on this trip was that when you think of, say, orphans even, or any problem all at once, it's just overwhelming. You can't save 150 million orphan children, but you can save one. And that's what I was, I was struck by at the orphanage was how, how important, I mean, how incredibly world-shakingly important it is to rescue these two girls from this little you know, hellhole they were living in and give them a lease on life. Well, they're just two of a massive, massive problem but they are two really important ones in my book. So if you could do that again and again and again um, or make their lives better or help them in any way, um, I'm currently in the middle of a, the first project for a new orphanage is a project we're calling Orphan School. And at the same orphanage where I've been living, um, we're trying to expand their school. Their school is, is half as big as it needs to be, so we're trying to raise um, some money. So on Indiegogo, we've launched a campaign called Orphan School, and we're about $40,000 $40, into the campaign. We're looking to raise 100 So if anyone's interested to go to Orphan School and check it out, you can see what we're up to and, uh, and maybe get involved or share it around or whatever you might, whatever you might think. And I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. post those links with the show. And um, just for those of you Great. who are just joining us, I see a bunch of you just joined us, we're chatting with John Marshall. This is Elizabeth Hamilton Garino and Dr. Walter Jacobson. And uh, we have author John Marshall on the line, and he's the author of Wide Open World. His book came out in February, and it's a... Uh, it's a great hardback book. I think there's a, an audio of it and a Kindle of it and an e-book and a paperback and, you know, any format you want, um, you can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And I will make sure we post the links to all the things that we're talking about um, with the show. Um, but, John, thank, thank you for being here with us, and we're having a great chat. And, Dr. Walter, I could hear you. Before I uh, before I said yeah, all yeah. that, I could hear you going to ask a question. Go for it. <laughs> well, I, I was just I was just going to comment, John, on the the idea that uh, you know sometimes people in media, you're in media, where where you get an opportunity to reach like hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people, and theoretically have an impact uh, on changing their mindset. But uh, but I kind of agree with you, like uh, that that when you get down to like the the real level of one person at a time, one one spirit, one, you know, one mind at a time, that can actually be more powerful, you know, and, and you know, and it's obviously changed your life. It's, you, you know, you would be, you would, who knows what you'd be doing now. Now you're doing something that's going to enrich, like, the whole planet. So I kind of I find it interesting that, you, you know, you started out big and then you come back to small, but it's going to become big again, right? Yeah, well, you never know. Well, and, you know, something you said um, at the beginning of the show, you're talking about serving others, and how important it is, whether it's uh, forgiveness or it's service or it's pushing outside of your own self. And, um, you know, we really saw this on our trip. Um, so we, we went off with two teenage kids. And some people that we tell the story to think, oh, my goodness, I could never imagine spending an extended amount of time working or living in third world countries in extreme heat or in cramped conditions with my teenage kids. Um, but, you know, in our case, when we left, one, one goal I had for this trip was my daughter, Jackson, 
was spending a lot of time on social media and, and things like this, looking at her phone, looking down at her computer. And I really wanted her to, to look up, to see the world, maybe even see me, you know, look up and, and, and uh, see what else is out there beyond what's down there in cyberspace. And so we had a, we had a great experience. This is a story that she absolutely hates. Um, but we what were Alice? in India. <laughs> yeah, that's how <laughs> she's not listening. Um, but we were in India, and this process had now – we'd been on the road for maybe four or five months. And so the slow process of unplugging and engaging with the world and seeing others who maybe need more than you do, focusing out away from yourself onto other people, which is really the goal of – service, you know, see and give. Um, and so here's my 14-year-old daughter. And we had one day where there was a little, a little girl who was four, I think three or four months old, and we had her in our room overnight because the nursery, she was a twin. They had two twin girls. They were very small, and they just wanted a break from having two at a time. So we took one in our room. We had her sleep with us. She was very easy, but we just had her sleep there. And the next morning we woke up, it's pouring rain. And so I thought I'd just tuck the little girl under my arm and I'd just run her like a football down to breakfast and keep her dry. And my daughter's like, no, 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 no. Wait here, wait here. She runs out into the rain. I mean, it's pouring. This is like a monsoon rain. She runs across the puddles. She comes running back and she hands an umbrella to my wife and says, here, okay, you can keep the baby, keep her dry. And then she says, and here, dad, here's one for you. And she gives me an umbrella. And then she just runs off. She's already wet, so she just runs off to breakfast by herself and takes off. And I thought that she, that she on her own, you know, ran off into the rain and then not only brought an umbrella to protect the baby, but then saw me standing there and wanted to give me an umbrella too. I just thought, oh, my gosh, it's working. You know, she's, she's looking up and she's seeing, instead of seeing me as like a you know, background noise in her life, she's seeing me. And I, I just thought that was something that really this process of, of going out and serving, we could have taken a long vacation and just, you know, stayed at hotels and, and eaten at restaurants and seen sites. But by serving and by getting sort of an extended uh, experience of being able to serve other people, especially as teens, I mean, we've seen a dramatic change in their lives that continues to this day. This has been years ago. But that was really um, probably the greatest benefit of a trip like this is that. It's just allowing your heart to open up a little bit. And particularly for teens, I think it's a powerful experience. So the trip's done, right? You're, you're done um, hmm. with the, the last place. Where do you go next and, and what happens in your life? Are you here back in Maine? I know the answer to this a little bit, but I, I'm just sort of for story's sake. You're not in Maine. Are you, no. Yeah, well, I've I I, I did spend all I spent most of last year back at this orphanage. So I was there for Christmas, I was there for New Year's. And then when I flew back, as you were saying at the top of the show, the winter is so brutal back in Maine that I decided to fly um to Florida and spend some of the time Why? down here. So I'm just getting ready to start a book tour which will take me from Florida across the country to California, looping up and around, and ending back in Maine. So I'll be back in Maine uh, middle, of the, middle of May. And I'm hoping, quite honestly, I'm hoping to get back to the orphanage um, 
the uh, next book that I'm planning to write is called Mission, and it's about not just the mission and living at this mission in India, but also the new mission that it's inspired in me. So I, I'm hoping uh, that's the project I'm going to be working on, and the place to write that will be will be back there. So um, uh, yeah. that's a little bit about what comes next. And I, yeah, and yeah. I noticed one of your kids, like um, in the in the book, one of your kids backpacked through South America without you. Where you're like, wait, 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 no, 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 I'm supposed to do that. You're supposed to, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you're like, <laughs> did you, yeah. did you expect well, no, that? No, yeah, because he, well, he went off to college. Um, I think yeah. he got into college because his essay was about um, the trip and how, you know, how it had changed him. But he went to college for a while, and he really felt it wasn't a great fit for who he was or what he wanted right then. Um, so he took some time off, and he went to South America he backpacked around, and he had he had a moment where he called me, and he said that he had a kind of a, a it wasn't a dangerous stretch, but it was kind of an off the grid stretch, and he was wondering if I wanted to fly down, and just make this long stretch along the coast, this kind of very uninhabited area, which seemed to be a little sketchy. If I wanted to make that trip with him, and I I would have loved to, but I really decided not to go, because I thought one thing that's amazing, especially when you're 21 is to do those types of things on your on your own. You know, I think a lot of the trip, we tried to in, encourage that for them to make decisions and to, to kind of make plans or arrangements whenever we could do that. But this was a chance for him to do it on his own. So he ended up living down there for really, I think, about a year and a half where he wanted to learn Spanish, so he lived with a Spanish family. And he's now mostly fluent in Spanish, and is, um, he's, he's, he still hasn't returned to school. He's, he's thinking about it. But he doesn't know exactly what he wants to do. But he definitely has the bug, and uh, and you know I think a lot of that spirit really was generated from the trip that we took. You, you know I I kind of took a mini trip myself when uh, my second year of medical school I started to have doubts about uh, being a doctor and uh, I was very kind of discouraged and disheartened about the whole thing and it was difficult and so uh, my grandmother was in like a, a nursing home in, in Colorado in Denver and I was in Milwaukee. And so uh, during like a two-week break, I hitchhiked out to see her and, uh, and hang out there a bit. And, when, and the people I met on the path, the people who picked me yeah. up, and uh, it, it, was, it was just, it lifted my spirits. It, it brought like, my, me back to a place of like, hope and positivity, and, uh, and you know, it got me back into the groove again. I, it, was, it was an amazing amazing experience. I can really relate to the idea of just letting go of, of your boundaries and, and taking off. Yeah, well, and it was something where I think a lot of times um, regular life or routines of life can be sort of hypnotic, and they can put you right to sleep. Um, you know, before we took this trip, I found I could wake up and brush my teeth and take a shower and get dressed and eat breakfast and walk out the door and get to the car and drive to the TV station without even – I didn't even have to be awake I could basically do it in my sleep because I'd because I'd worn that rut in my life so deeply that I'm basic and time is passing, going very very quickly, year upon year upon year. Here, my kids are 17. You know, my my son, who we wanted to take this trip the day he was born, now he's 17 years old, getting ready to leave home, and we still haven't launched because we're in we're in we're in the rut. You know, we're in the zone of just repeating, repeating, repeating. And the beautiful thing that we found about this trip was it instantaneously wakes you completely up. 
Mm. Because everything is new. Every single thing you see, oftentimes every word that people are saying to you is a new, you know, different language. Every activity is new. At the at the sanctuary in Costa Rica, every time you opened a door, you needed to be on ultra mega high alert because the monkeys are trying to get in to your cage. So you'd see them on the bars looking like they're not paying. <laughs> These monkeys are looking at you on the bars like they're not paying attention. You know, they're they're just kind of casually hanging out. But the second you open the door, they they're, they're totally on. You know, ready to sprint in. So you've got to get ready. You're poised. Your eyes, you're on. All your senses are alert. And you quickly undo your latch and slip out and close it and close the latch. Now, that's a that's an absolutely 180-degree change from the drone that I was walking out my door like a zombie, going to my car, starting the car, driving to work, you know, and going through the motions of the day. So that's something where just that change alone makes time go slower, makes every all the colors seem a little bit brighter, makes the memories, everything is so vivid because you're living in a state of not high alert, although well, I was with the monkeys, but, but just sort of that heightened sense of awareness, which makes life feel very full and very uh, just kind of a daily excitement. So for that alone, like you say, breaking, that, breaking the time at school, hitchhiking out, meeting new people, suddenly you feel alive. You feel like, mm-hmm. okay, life isn't a series of repetitive motions. It's an adventure. And, you know, what's your adventure going to be today? Mm-hmm. Did you know when you started out that you were going to write a book, or um, was that a surprise to everybody at the end of this? You're, you're like, well, you know, guess what? I'm going to write a book about this. Or did they kind of know the whole time that you were thinking about writing a book? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a writer, so I wanted to blog about the trip. Um, I wanted to do that mostly for family and friends, but ended up growing a, you know, quite a large audience along the way. Um, but I didn't think about – I tried not to think of this story as a book. I tried to think of it as, as my life, as an adventure, and not think of, like, what will make a good story. Or, yeah, I think you it could doesn't become, seem like that either. You, yeah, and you can become overanalytical of your own choices if you're seeing your life as a narrative that you're living, you know. So I really tried to just live it and then we'd see what would what would happen. Then after the fact when I got home, I sat down and thought, I think that this, you know, that there'll be a story here and uh and then set about to to kind of put it all together, but I really tried not to on the road analyze things in terms of narrative, you know, where does this fit in the narrative? I really tried not to think about that at all. Yeah, you know, I have to ask this uh, about your one of your journeys, because I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, of kind of spiritual stuff and quests and Tibetan monks and things like that, and uh, you got a section on, like, the Siddhartha School. I was wondering if maybe you could just share a little bit of what that experience was like. Sure. Well, there's a, there's a gentleman um, whose name is Ken Rinpoche, uh, well, he's got a very long name, but I call him Ken Rinpoche. Um, Ken Rinpoche is a Buddhist monk. Um, he lives in a very small town in the Himalayas. It's called Stok. It's up in Ladakh, which is the northernmost portion of India. It's right up near the Tibetan border. Um, so I met Ken Rinpoche in Maine. He comes to Maine, of all places, to fundraise. And I met him one day, and I, I really just instantly fell in love with him. He's like... You know, he looks a bit like the Dalai Lama, I mean, just to give a very broad stroke, but he's always smiling, and he just has this incredible energy and, you know, positive, beautiful, uh, 
qualities about him. So I just instantly loved him, wanted to help him in any way I could. Ended up uh, actually shooting a shooting a video for his organization, flying to India and shooting a video for him for free just to try and help. But when I took my family back there, you know, it, this place, if you've ever been to a Buddhist country, um, every time we passed into a Buddhist country, we felt instantly safe because um, the people there are just incredibly kind. I mean, people are kind all over the world, but something about Buddhist culture, uh, people are very humble and kind, and they, they, they basically oftentimes didn't want us serving them. They just wanted to serve us, so it was sometimes a little awkward. But we were in this village of, of Stok, which is where Ken Rinpoche is from, and the Siddhartha School is located. And we found the people in this village um, are very, very poor. Most of them are farmers. They make their own clothes. They still use farm animals to move things around. I mean, it's just, it's like a, almost a, like a time capsule in many ways for what maybe rural Tibet was once like, or maybe still is. I don't know. I haven't been there. But but the people there were, they have a lot to teach the world, I really believe. They're just so simple. They're so, they're so respectful. And uh, I had one great experience where, you know, as you travel around the world, you'll see street beggars, little kids begging for money everywhere you go. So I got used to carrying around a roll of five and ten rupee notes in my pocket. A five rupee note is worth 12 cents. And it looks like a five dollar bill, but it's worth 12 cents. A ten rupee note is worth 25 cents. So I keep a little roll of these, and if kids would ask me for money, I'd give them 12 cents. And when my money was gone, that was, that was it. I got very used to doing this. I don't know if it was right or wrong to do this, but that's just what I did. So in Stoke, though, one night I was walking through the streets, and these three boys see me. These are kids from Stoke, from this little village. These guys, everyone in this, you know, very poor place. But these boys see me, and they start running towards me. They're maybe, you know, 10 years old. So, so I quickly reach into my pocket thinking, you know, here, I know this drill. Reach into my pocket. I got my, I got my five and ten rupee notes. I know what's coming up. So the boys walk up to me, and they say, sir, 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 please, please, please. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm reaching in my pocket. But they're reaching in their pockets, too. And the first boy, who's kind of the leader, reaches his hand out and says, please, please, here. And he hands me, opens his hand, and he has what, what looks like the dirtiest apricot in the world. <laughs> so, so I said, oh, okay, you know, for me? Okay, hey, thanks. Well, when the second boy sees me take it, he reaches in his pocket, and he says, sir, sir, please, please. And he, t- he hands me, if I thought this first apricot was dirty... This second one is the dirtiest apricot in the world. So I, I, I take that one. And I say, oh, okay, hey, thanks, you know, guys. I don't really want these, but, you know, they they're clearly want me to have them. Well, when I take the second apricot, I look at the third boy, and he's just, his face is like panic-stricken. And, and, and I just, I say, hey, look, you know, it's okay. Look, I got these apricots. You know, don't worry about it. I'm good. And he reaches in his pocket. He keeps his head down. And he extends his hand very slowly, and he opens it up, and it's it's a mostly eaten apple. <laughs> I mean, eighty-five percent eaten. <laughs> and he hands it up with his head down, very very shamefully. Aww. You know, that's all he has. And so I took it. I tried to take it, you know, not like a used band-aid. I tried to take it like, oh, thanks. And when I did, like his face lights up with joy. And these three boys, almost like, you know, want to high-five each other and be like, yes, we got to give to someone today. And they ran off just happy as can be into the, into the sunset. And I really was struck by 
you know, if your children get to spend time with children like that, when that's their default, their default attitude is to give. You know, that whole, their whole culture there was about giving. And um, to spend time in that kind of a culture, to let my children spend time in that kind of a culture was just a really a deep, deep honor for me and really just a great, great gift that I could give to them. What did, you, what did you learn? What are some of the things that you learned from all of this about yourself and and all of that? I, 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 um, I, one of the parts in your book that I'm most struck by is when you're when you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're feeling kind of old and kind of like the the yeah. life is gone from you and just feel blah. And um, yeah, I don't I don't know if mo- anybody who doesn't feel that way at one point or another. Yeah, well, that was right before the trip. I was 44. I was standing. It was my birthday. I'm looking at myself in the mirror. I did not recognize myself. I just looked like an old man. I looked You're pale. You're the guy from Revenge of I the looked... Nerds. <laughs> one of the writers on the Nerds. <laughs> yeah, no, I looked like my eyes look dim. I'm getting a little bit fat. My hair is gray. I just feel like, and I don't have that spark. I don't have that spark for life that I had as a young man. I just feel like I've lost it. You know, where what's happened? Where is that enthusiasm for life that gets you out of bed each day and says, "Let's do this." You know, let's let's get on with this day. And um so it traveling wasn't for, lack of for achieving. me, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. It wasn't for lack of achieving though, because I mean, um you know, as far as here goes, you know, it's like your your TV god. Um so what was it? Yeah, you know, I think it's that whether it's awards or it's recognition of some sort, really that internal happiness comes from personally, I mean, you know, to me comes from a recognition that you are where you should be. You know, you're doing the work that means something to you. You are doing something with your time and your life that feels meaningful. And I think after say 12 years, I think it was in the TV business locally, I was feeling a little bit like, Again, I was maybe going through the motions. I'm feeling like my marriage is slipping away. You know, my, my kids are slipping away. My life is slipping away. You know, I'm, I'm middle-aged. What's happening? You know, where's, where's, that, where's that crazy fever for life that I had when I was much younger? And, and the thing about the trip for me was it was a chance to just connect with not only family, but also just the world in general. And I found... You know, it's funny. People sit around and they talk about the world. They talk about the problems of the world. So whether it's they want to build wells for people that need fresh water, they want to save the environment. And you talk about it in, you know, people can be very passionate about it, but almost in an abstract way. You know, you talk about the rainforest, let's save the rainforest, but maybe you've never been to the rainforest. And one lesson I learned is, it's almost like internet dating in a way. Like if you want to fall in love with someone or something, you should probably meet it first. It's probably a good lesson. And that if you want to fall in love with orphan children, I'm telling you, meet them. It would be so easy to fall. It's, it's easy. I can convince people that they're worth saving because I'm so passionate about them. But if you meet them, you don't need me to convince you because you will be convinced. And when you meet the world in whatever it is, I don't care if it's your local homeless shelter, and I think this is where service is so powerful, whether it's, whether it's 
the rainforest or the homeless or whatever it is, when you meet them, they're really like I find it's really easy to fall in love with someone that you've that you've met and had a personal connection. And I'm not sure that volunteering volunteering sometimes gets a bad rap because people say, oh, it's a bunch of do-gooder Westerners who travel around and think they're saving the world, and really they're just, you know, they're just going around getting Facebook pictures so they can say, look at me, you know, look at I'm I'm here with all these little poor kids, and look at me, I'm so great because I'm I'm doing this thing. And I feel the total opposite is actually true. The truth of it is, you're not doing it for them, you're doing it for yourself. It's almost selfish. Because if you do it right, you will get so much more out of this than you're putting in, and you will connect. You're making connections around the world that can, that can have ripples far beyond your little week vacation or two or three, or like however long you happen to take it. But it can not only transform your life, but if you let it, it can, it can inspire all the people you meet, all the people you're going to meet. And those little ripples then, if, if, if enough of us get out there and do it, can really actually change the world. Initially, you may not, uh, but the world will definitely change you. You know, uh, it just reminds me of kind of like a, that, the movie It's a Wonderful Life, where, uh, you know, after he's, you know, the, the, the angel says to, to Jimmy Stewart, you know, do you realize, like, if you you not being here, all the people you touched and all the people that you helped, this guy helped your brother and he helped all these other people and those people were alive to help these people. It's an amazing kind of uh Right extension of, uh, of of cooperation and paying it forward, right? Yeah, and you know, I'll I'll tell you. So right now, I'm I'm in the process, as I mentioned, of trying to raise money for a school over in India. It's an orphanage school. We're trying to raise some money to expand it. So I put this on the web, and I, you know, we've been hustling around, and we have about forty thousand dollars we've raised. That's great. However, there was a family. This couple um, was from India. They had, a, they had a son. They loved their son. They sent their son off to college in London. Their son died. This, this, this couple is heartbroken. They don't, they, they're too old to have more children. They don't know what to do with their time or, or with their lives. And so one night, the man is just on the web, and he's just searching for no reason, and he ends up at the orphanage website where, I, where I've been staying. Well, the homepage for the orphanage, which is called IndianOrphanage.com, if anyone wants to check it out, um, the homepage is dedicated to this campaign. So as soon as he lands on, as soon as he lands on the page, the video that I made starts playing. Well, he watches the video just because it's playing, and it says that we're trying to raise money for a school, and we're trying to build science labs. Well, his son was studying to be a scientist, and he feels this incredible desire with he and his wife to help this project. So he calls the director of the orphanage and says, I want to be a part of this project. And he's in the process of committing, uh, it's not official yet, but a substantial sum. But the thing about that story that I love is that because I did this, because I put this project together, because we shot the video and put it on the web, it allowed this man and his, and his, and his wife an outlet for their grief to turn it from something tragic into something positive. And those connections that we make when we reach out, when we try, when we put something in motion, are then, we don't know how they're going to play out. I didn't know these people. I didn't know he was going to stumble on it. I'm happy he did, but I'm happy that I did this for him. And that that's the web, I think, that service can, can build, that, that, that can grow. By just those little ripples, by reaching out, by doing something, then we can inspire each other, touch other people, and you know, maybe ultimately change the world. 
For everybody listening, we're live with John Marshall. He's the author of Wide Open World, How Volunteering Around the Globe Changed One Family's Life Forever. On Twitter, he is JohnMarshall.com, and he's on Facebook, and his website is JohnMarshall.com. And um, I couldn't agree with you more on all the things that you're saying, and I'm, I'm wondering, um, do you have any more time to, to hang out with us, or do you need to go? Do you have I'd, maybe ten more minutes? No, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd, I'd love to hang out. Okay, we're going to go over. Uh, Dr. Walter, do you have time? Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. Um, I wanted to ask you about. I'm, I'm just going to randomly turn to pages in your book, if that's okay with you. Do you have your book in front of you? Sure. <laughs> By any chance? Okay. Uh, I'm I, on. Um, <laughs> what you forgot it memorized, I'm sure. But um, I, I could I'm probably recite it for you. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I've got. I'm open to 146 and 147, where where this just raises the point of. Um, if you're going to go volunteer in a different country or even vacation in a different country, sometimes people are afraid to do that because they just don't know the language. Um, I'm wondering how you guys did that. Um, I, you know, tears and smiles, yep, those are pretty much universal um, language markers for most of us. But you, this is actually kind of a funny chapter, too, in a way. Talk about how you learn languages when you're in different parts of the world. <laughs> well, well, and this particular page that you opened up to, this was in Thailand. So the Thai language is incredibly difficult. Um, I had an experience where I met some boys at, uh, in, a, in a train station, and they were kind of just kind of not pestering us, but just wanted to engage us. They just wanted to talk. And so uh, I said, well, what's your name in English? And one boy said, name is Ba. So I said, oh, hello, Ba. And the, all the boys laughed. And he said, it's not Ba, it's Ba. <laughs> so, so I said, okay, Ba. And they laughed like crazy. And like, no, no, you're saying Ba, but it's Ba. And I can't hear it. I cannot <laughs> hear the change. And so Thai is just, it's a, it's a tonal language. It has, you know, all kinds of inflections, five different tones for every vowel sound, you know, so high or low or rising and falling. And so, you know, in, in Thailand, where we taught English, uh, my kids actually got to teach their own English classes at 14 and 17, which is another great confidence booster for them. But in Thai, I just tried to make little word pictures uh, out of the language. And I actually was having fun, you know, trying to learn that language. I'm usually terrible at languages, and I was probably terrible at this one, too. But, you know, I would, I would think of things, uh, you know, to say hello in Thai is sawati krap. So I would say sour tea crap. That is my that is my way of remembering hello. You know, have a cup of sour tea crap. That is my that's my hello. But I, I did that for almost every word I remembered in Thai was in this crazy little word, you know, picture. So like breakfast is a hun chow. So I think of Attila the Hun eating his chow at breakfast, that's the word for breakfast. A hun chow. You know, it's like crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. But it was actually, you know, it was it was a way that I could get some of that language down. But in a lot of places, you know, we went, they, they spoke English. A lot of people speak English around the world. So language isn't really oftentimes too much of a barrier. We, we kind of got our way around. How do you feel about That's the funny. food? What's butterfly? <laughs> butterfly? What's that? What's butterfly? <laughs> butterfly. Uh, butterfly. Is, I honestly, I don't remember butterfly at the moment. But, uh, like pea uh, sewer or something? Oh yeah, pea sewer. So it's like pea in the sewer, butterfly, pea sewer. 
Um, you know, so th- that, that was basically it. That, it was it was all it was all ridiculous stuff like that. That um, it would probably it's be not the, the Berlitz day, huh? method of learning a language, but <laughs> that's kind of yeah. how we did it. Oh gosh. Well, we're not going to end on that, this. are we, Doctor Walter? <laughs> no, I wanted to ask about this. talking about pea, pea soup. What, what's that's the so food fun. like? Did you, did you have any problem with food there, or was it incredibly interesting, or what? No, I mean it was it was pretty. You know, the the food was uh, was different everywhere we went. Uh, you know, it was very basic a lot of the times, and and that's something where I think, um, you know, I, I think I lost twenty pounds on the trip. You know, so there was a lot of sweating. It was hot. I mean, one 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 day in Thailand it was one hundred and twenty five degrees, which is wow. you know hard to even walk around. Um, but the food, you know, generally we ate whatever the people ate. And that's another great thing about volunteering as opposed to just traveling. Uh, so say, for instance, you go to Thailand and you go to Chiang Mai and you stay in a nice hotel and you eat and you order restaurant food. And, you know, you just you're living this sort of isolated lifestyle. In our case, we lived at a homestay in Thailand in a very rural village out in the middle of nowhere where they don't get many visitors. And so we were like a novelty act. Our kids were like, I mean, Honestly, at the end of their classes, their students would ask them for autographs because they just, you know, they were just so, the kids loved our kids for whatever reason. Maybe they, you know, they remind them of um, people on TV, their kids that they've seen on TV or something. I'm not sure. But, um, but uh, you know, it's something where I think you just got to, you just get out there and, uh, and, you know, by traveling and going to some of these places, some of the smaller places, in fact, um, you know, we found just just a totally different experience than than you know staying in in fancy places. We ate what the local people ate. We lived with a local family. This happened all over all over the country where we were welcomed into homes instead of and 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 part of a local community of people serving for a local cause. In, and so you have instant friends, instant connection connection to the villages or the places or the cause. And instead of just sterilely walking around looking at sites or statues or, you know, things like this, you're actually doing something, um, which I found to be much more gratifying than any vacation I've ever had. I really encourage people out there, if they've never done this, uh, volunteered, you know, some people report their lives are forever changed by a single week of this kind of service. They come back and totally reprioritize their whole lives, um, so we did actually for six months. We were actually on the road for six months, and that can have a really profound effect. Most people maybe can't pull it off for that length of time, but even a week or even adding a little day of service to your vacation, I think, can be really powerful just to, 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 to give it a try. So I really encourage people um, to just consider volunteering, maybe not so much for the change you're going to affect in the world, but for the change that you can have in your own life, and that's a great place to start. Do we have more? There- I have one more question. Do you, Elizabeth? Yeah, I think we've got a, f- a few more, actually. Um, did you want to go first, or should I, I go? Know. Go ahead. Yeah. You? Okay. Um, <laughs> we do that a little bit. We trip over each other a little bit because we can't see each other. <laughs> That's okay. You know, we're all the way across the country, so bear with us. Sure. Um, is there any place that you were thinking about going where you were like, oh, better not go there, not safe, or, or anything like that? Or, or is there a spot people should, um, you know, look for that kind of thing? Well, yeah, I mean, you can go to the um, – the U.S. government has has a great resource for travelers where you can go and you can see, you know, every disease that's a danger in different countries. You can see any threats 
um, if they say don't they have don't travel warnings in different countries. While we were we were in uh, Melbourne, Australia, getting ready to fly to Bangkok in Thailand for our for our time as um, as teachers, and there was a warning. There was a riot that broke out in Bangkok, and people were being killed. And the government had surrounded this group of protesters, and there were shots fired, and you know this city was burning in isolation. And the Australian news anchor came on in our TV, in our hotel TV, and said. The government has raised the threat warning to do not travel to Bangkok. And, you know, our flight was leaving the next day. And so, you know, we we, we canceled those tickets, um, which the airline let us do for nothing because of the warning. But in the end, we had to decide, you know, is this a real danger or not? Is this an isolated incident? Are we going to be in the middle of a war zone? You know, so you have to weigh. We did have to weigh those types of things. There's definitely countries I would not go to, just especially traveling with children or even just by myself. Um, but I think you just have to weigh your own, your own that balance between safety and risk. And we, we, you know, we didn't hit the road for six months to be 100% safe. That's not to say we we did anything that was ultra risky. But even by leaving home and doing this, we're taking some risk. And the idea was to not live in fear. You know, this was something that we discovered on the road was that I think people, when, you, when, you're, when you're at home, you can view the world as a really dangerous place, especially with news media now. I mean, every place is full of Ebola. You know, everyone is a terrorist. And the truth that we found is like, it's just not that, it's just not that way. I mean, these stories in the media are, are magnified. Every bad story is magnified thousandfold, so it feels like it's everywhere. But we were met, and maybe, you know, knock on wood, but... We were met by kindness and generosity and welcome and love really almost every, well, everywhere we went. Now, whether that's a, whether we, we, we dodged a hundred bullets, I can't say, but uh, that was our experience. I was going to, I was going to say that it seems, it seems to me like there's like an experience like you had is like a sort of a spiritual awakening uh, on, on, a, on one level. And, uh, and I'm wondering when, when you came back, was it was there an assimilation process or i mean did did you get along with your friends again or was there an awkwardness or how did that work yeah well i mean this this renter that i mentioned uh, earlier in the show that that i didn't trust ended up you know completely trashing our house oh. i mean as if Sorry. as if you hired yeah as if you hired a hollywood set decorator and said okay i want you to make this look like someone broke in and destroyed the house like that's what it looked like it honestly looked like i mean we had broken windows we had things yeah strewn everywhere it was a disaster it was um i mean that aside you know i've found so i've i spent as i said most of last year living at an orphanage this is very simple living uh this is eating very you know kind of basic food uh dealing with whether it's heat or just you know not a lot of luxuries um so then you come back, and now I'm back in the States, and I'm living in with my folks down in Florida at uh, in a gated community, retirement gated community. <laughs> so, I mean, I went from living with the poorest children book right there. in the There's world. There's a whole book right there. <laughs> yeah, right, to living with, you know, the richest old people in the world. Um, so, so, so the contrast is really fairly stark. Um, but w- what I find is, 
so my my heart, honestly, my heart is with these kids. And so, so when I see, you know, whatever the most ostentatious wealth that I that I that I see over here, um, <laughs> I try I try not to be in any way judgmental about it, even though I know, you know, in India. Uh, the kind of money that I see here in the United States, I mean, would go an incredibly long way and could do an amazing amount of good. But because there's that kind of wealth over here, it's the opportunity then to, okay, well, if I can inspire people here, maybe we can do some good over there. Um, there's certainly lots of, there's certainly lots of uh, good that can be done. But, uh, you know, it is. It, it's, a, it's a contrast. The world is absolutely filled with the most, the, the richest and the poorest, and if you spend time on either of those two extremes and see the other, it's a pretty, um, it's an eye-opening thing. I'll tell you that much. When you, when you were a kid, do you think who you are right now is who you were initially, and you got sidetracked, or do you think you had to learn um, all the things that you've gone through to get to where you are right now? Yeah, no, I think I, I think I needed to. You know, really, Elizabeth, when I was young. I wanted to be a screenwriter in Hollywood, and because I wanted to be rich and famous. <laughs> really, that I mean, that, I, I can say with all uh, honesty, I thought I'd go out there to Hollywood and I would just make tons of money, and you know, I'd yeah. get all this fame and fortune. And um, and so, you know, so I worked really hard in that regard, and a lot of the things I did were fairly calculated. That I wanted to, I would do this because okay, this will sell, or this will do this or that. And now. Um, I think I needed to go through that because I think there was just that piece uh, in me. I needed to to strive in that direction for a certain amount of time. And now I can say, though, having having kind of stumbled in a, in a lucky sort of accidental way um, into the lives of these kids, you know, who in many people, maybe worldview, they're the cast-offs of the world. They're the least powerful, the, the sort of least, um, you know, have the least influence. Um, being able to serve them fills me with an unbelievable sense of accomplishment and worth. Much more so, you know. So I have won. I've won a bunch of, you know, television awards, and those awards really mean nothing to me compared to being able to work on behalf of these kids. And that then feels much more like purpose than fame and fortune. You know, it feels almost silly. I'm embarrassed to say it, but, uh, you know, that was a reality for my younger self. So, yeah, I think I needed to maybe grow in, grow up a little bit and grow into um, something like this. And even now, I, I, I really feel it to do it with a great deal of humility and put the kids first. This is not about me. Um, it's really about, about them and, and how can their lives be improved and, and lots more like them because there's certainly plenty of them out there. And, and what's it been like for people who um, really weren't on your same page and were like, we have no clue what John's doing, John's lost it, <laughs> where, where are you, John? You know, those kinds of things. <laughs> are, did you, did, a little bit of that. Did, what do you, you know, people have had to, I'm going to guess, sort of catch up to you, to you a little bit in your thinking and what you're doing and so forth. What's that been like for you? Because I know a lot of the times, when when you want to change, um, those people who have been around you aren't necessarily on the same page, and it can be an adjustment for everybody, parents, family, friends, coworkers, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, that's true. I think in my case, you know, most of the story of my, um, of some of the work I've been doing has have been told 
through video projects. I've done if if um, if you see any of my videos online, you'll you most of them have to do with orphans. I'm in none of them. Um, they're all starring these kids, and uh, I love working with them. They love it, and so it's a, it's a way we can tell stories using these little these these guys. Um, but when people see those stories, it's really easy to get the why they're so wonderful because the kids are really just full of joy. I mean, they'll make you they'll make you just crack up if you look at their faces and and uh, and hear them talk and spend any length of time with them. You'll know that uh, you know their worth uh, shines through so fast. But so I, I don't think anyone I think anyone that sees what I've been doing then says, okay, I get it. Like that's great. Wow. I, you know, I think a lot of people then feel like, you know, I've had I've had lots of people who feel inspired yeah. uh, to what about make changes in their own though? lives. Like initially yeah. though, well, like I I'm trying to get get to the point of like where you know when you want to do something, I know like when I started Best Ever You for example and I quit a, you know, a forever mm-hmm. career too in the financial services industry, people thought I had lost my marbles. You know, my my mom and dad right. were like, what are you doing exactly? I'm like, no, I want to be a speaker and an author and writer and do this and show people how to do this and that and another thing. And they were like, oh, yeah. did you get any of that? Because I I love um, I love people who have, you know, the courage to push through fear and sort of help the naysayers along and so forth. Because, you know, sometimes there's people who just aren't, are like, what are you doing? Initially, yeah, no, we, we did. Yeah, no, and and for the trip, when we were taking our kids and pulling them out of school, so they were going to miss half a year of school, people thought, you cannot do that. In fact, I recently read something, it was on the Today Show, I heard it on the Today Show, but I was reading about it on, as well, that someone's trying to pass a law to make it illegal to take your kids out for extended travel. Oh, no. Which I just, I personally find it crazy because it was one thing that was clear on this trip was that Travel beats classroom anything, any day of the week. I mean, there's so much you can learn by traveling. Um, at least that was that was our uh, our observation. That was really kind of a, a no-brainer for me. But um, we did have that. We got a bit from that pushback from from teachers. You know, some people think, oh my gosh, you you know, I had one woman pull me aside before we went on this trip. We had a going away party, and she grabbed me, and she goes, I, I would feel terrible if I didn't tell you something before you go, so could I please have your undivided attention just for one minute? And I said, yeah, no, sure, what is it? And she said, okay, listen to me. They steal children around the world. You know, and she was so afraid for our kids. Of course, you know, at that point, my daughter at 14, she's a tough cookie. She could have probably taken care of herself or any uh, would-be captor, but... She was concerned, like she was really worried that we were doing something reckless and crazy. And, you know, all I can say is we chose not to see the the danger. Yeah, yeah, we chose not to see the fear and the danger of it all. We chose to see the opportunity and the adventure and the learning uh, of it all. And so, and that's end up, you know, what we found. I think you can see the world is full of fear and maybe it is for you, but we chose not to, not to see that. What a cool interview, huh, Dr. Walter? Do you, do you oh have yeah. More? We're yeah, just I just want to quote uh, quote something you put in the uh, in your epilogue. Uh, boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. Yeah, I mean, and 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 I think I mean that's uh, that is something where by by starting this trip, 
we didn't know how it was going to end up. We really didn't. We didn't have all the stops planned. We had a, we had we had a few just holes in our itinerary, but we bought tickets. And and in fact, when I when we I first presented this idea to my boss at the TV station, he said, "Well, great. Let's give you a leave of absence without pay for six months. And after six months, just come back and work with us." I said, "Great." So we bought plane tickets. That was the time. Well, then he said, <laughs> that was funny. He, "Yeah." And then he said, "You know what?" Yeah, he said, "You know." I just talked to the home office, and they said, we can't do that. You have to resign your position. And I said, okay, I, I resign. And we, and we left. But by buying those tickets, by pulling that trigger, we had, you know, that was the bold step. Once we, once we invested in those tickets that were so expensive, okay, we're in. We're going. They're non-refundable. And so we took that leap. And from that bold leap um, – so many wonderful things for for all of us, but have kind of spun have spun out from there. So yeah, I believe that. I believe you start even if you don't see how the end of the road is. Uh, someone told me you can drive across the country in the pitch dark, so long as you can see the light of your headlights on the road just right in front of you. Just keep going. Take that start. Move on down the road and uh, and, and take the next step. And and uh, oftentimes, at least in our case, uh, lots of good things can happen. Yeah, and I, I was in the office two days after all that went down. That's why I was giggling because yeah. I just remember the look on his face, and he's like, Elizabeth, guess what happened? I'm like, I already know what happened. <laughs> he's like, what am I going to do? <laughs> and 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 I think there's a point right there, too, because you can sort of feel guilted into like, oh, how are these people all going to deal with my absence, and how is this going to happen? And, and I, I think people do that also there's like this guilty feeling when you're quitting something and putting other people in a predicament so to speak um did you how did you deal with that because there's an element to that when you pick up and leave um to go do what you want to do and it affects other people yeah and that's true i mean we had we had grandparents who were going to miss the kids their cousins were going to miss the kids uh work people you know local friends uh, all kinds of commitments, all kinds of obligations. Um, but in the end of the day, I don't know. I, I think you, you know, you guys know probably better than anyone. You decide what is, who who are you? What do you want? You know, what do you want from this life? This is the thing that struck me is how short, you know, maybe because I'm getting a little older too, but how short life is and how this, this, this little game that we're all playing, it's all going to wrap up here before way too, you know, in such a short amount of time. So what do we want from it? You know, what do we want in this moment to do? And if there's a secret yearning, and this was a real call for us, this this trip, and then the volunteer idea seemed to be, uh, if not divinely inspired, at least a you know at, at least a inspired nudge, uh, felt like something we should do. And you know, I'm so glad that we did have the have the courage, if you can call it courage, but had the you know the gumption just to actually make it happen. It'd been, it would have certainly been easier not to do, um, but by going out. And trying something that feels, you know, that little voice that tells you to do something, you know, by actually doing it, I don't know. For us, it worked out. So, uh, you know, yeah. maybe for other people, uh, if, if 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 they can uh, have the courage to get out and do their own thing, then you know, whatever that is, uh, maybe they'll find the same results for them for themselves. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, we put the put the kids in the car in the van in the minivan. This is not the same volunteering kind of thing, but I I remember doing this with <laughs> all four kids in the minivan, the dog. And um, we we took everybody for a summer vacation. We left for six solid weeks, and we drove up through Maine and all across Canada, 
and back down through the states and back down around. We did one giant loop around, and yeah, uh, we had kids kids learn to read during that trip. We had you know sure. every kind of thing that just so much different than classroom learning, like you're saying, on a different scale and not volunteering or anything, but just those moments that you have um, where you just sort of decide to do something and you go for it. They they can change your life in so many different ways um, when you get out of your everyday routine. I couldn't. So anyway, what a cool book and um, what an inspiration it is to speak with you. And thank you for your time. I know we've gone over here. Um, Dr. Walter, anything more? No, I just want to reiterate, thank you so much. Your story is inspiring, yeah. and I think people do need to let go of their uh, kind of self-definitions and expand and and take chances. And what you did was great and inspiring. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, thank you so anything? much. I, I, no, you know, and, and the only thing I want to add is just that um, I really sincerely hope that this book inspires other people to just like we were talking whether it's whether it's travel around the world and I have had I had someone recently call me and say they were going to duplicate this trip exactly with their family all around the world and yeah. I thought okay awesome now that's not the goal is that okay you will have this exact same trip but if pieces of it or even the tone or the feel behind it if it inspires you to get out and make something that you've been uh, that you've been dreaming about, or even just to help you kind of snap out of a of a rut. I mean, I really, really hope that this uh, this accomplishes that for for readers or for um, for people out there. So I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to be able to talk about it with you, and it's been great to be on your program. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, John, and thank you everybody for listening. Um, grab a copy of this book. It's it's definitely a life changer. It's called Wide Open World: How Volunteering Around the Globe Changed One Family's Life Forever. The author is John Marshall. And um, just really a great read. And um, you've got John. Where are those videos? Are those on johnmarshall.com? dot um, com? Yeah. If you went. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, if people go to johnmarshall.com, dot com, you can find different videos. Will be there, uh, or, or or you can find on on YouTube if you type in John Marshall. You can you can find me on there too somewhere. Perfect. All right. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We are going to be back on March nineteenth with. Dr. Ivan Meisner, and uh, we'll talk to you then. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great rest of your Sunday night and a great week ahead of you. Thank you, John, very much, and thank you, Dr. Walter. Take care, everybody. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Best Ever You Show. Want more? Visit us at besteveryou.com. Be your best and keep it real. Confident, successful, caring, and beautiful every day with Best Ever You. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.